I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I'm Karen Lewis, and I'm your host for today's episode, and I'm really, really honored to have our guest, Paula Scataloni. Hello, Paula. Hi, Karen. Thank you for having me today. So thrilled to have you. So Paula is a licensed clinical social worker who does incredible, incredible work working with eating disorders and trauma. I'm going to have her talk to you a little bit about what she does, but one of the things that's really, really special special about Paula's work is she is the co-creator of a model that she co-created with Rachel Lewis Marlowe called Embodied Recovery. And that is coming out of, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Paula, and I hope I'm saying this correctly. It has come out of somatic experiencing, which is really about getting into the body, which by the way, for people that are struggling with eating disorders, that is very difficult and often very unwanted. So Paula, I'm really excited for you to be able to tell listeners what you do and how it's worked for you and your clients. So Paula, welcome. And could you go ahead and give us a little a little synopsis of, of the work that you do? Wonderful. Yes, again, thank you. I love sharing about this work. And I'm I'm sorry, my co-facilitator cannot be here. But um, yes, Rachel Lewis Marlowe and I, about two and a half years ago, created a model that's an integration of somatic experiencing and sensory motor psychotherapy, which are bottom-up types of psychotherapy to begin to treat eating disorders. And it's a very different model than what we're traditionally using to treat eating disorders, which is what's called top-down or cognitive. And so it's super exciting to have access to something that's very different and actually hit some of the missing pieces of what I'm finding in current, current treatment, which is how to bring clients safely into their bodies when that's the very place they don't want to be. And so those two modalities combined with our understanding as well about sensory integration allows us to um, have some new ways of intervening that um, are what I'm seeing are, are really blowing clients' minds and their families' minds because they are um, effective and simple and they work. And so I'm finding clients that have had several treatment admissions or been 
struggling with recovery for many, many years and feeling frustrated and at the end of their ropes and they find us or they find someone trained in our model and all of a sudden these light bulbs start to happen and they start to um, be able to get over some of the hurdles that they just couldn't get through with traditional therapy. So beautiful. I imagine between the two theories that you're combining, what you're doing is allowing clients to feel safe enough to feel in their body and also understand when they go in or out of their window of tolerance. If you could talk a little bit to that, because I think what happens is clients are so afraid what if I start feeling and I never stop? Or what if I start feeling and it just, all these feelings take me away? Can you explain a little bit about that, Paula? Well, what I'd like to start with are the three reasons why we go out of our window. And this is something I would explain to clients and family. We go out of our window because of attachment deficits, a trauma physiology, or sensory integration. And so what our model does is it uh, addresses all three of those. So attachment deficits or the conditions of attachment means that um, we, we're operating in, in, a, in strategies that allow us to feel like we have a operating attachment system. And the eating disorders, unfortunately, are part of those strategies, right? And so some of the model is about um, using somatic interventions to expand the attachment system because that system was built age zero to three. And the language of that age, of that stage of development is the body and use it using touch, yeah? And using somatic, it's a sensory motor language. And so intervening in the attachment system to expand the attachment system so the window itself is bigger means um, teaching clients about some of the developmental processes that happen during that time. So the capacity to yield into safe relationship, the capacity to reach for another, for something outside of you to get your need met the capacity to take in something that's being offered from the outside, whether that's relationship or whether that's food, and the capacity to digest, right? So those are all infant uh, developmental processes that we need um, to develop in order to have both effective um, motor patterns, but also to have affect a secure attachment, right? And also to have effective eating. So, so that's one level of intervening is taking clients into those gestures or those patterns of um, operating to understand like, okay, so what happens when I reach? If I, if I extend my hand out to reach, what do I start to notice in the body that comes up? when I drop into that gesture. And the implicit will come right up to the surface. 
Meaning what? Can you explain that for listeners when you say the implicit will come right, right up, to, up the to the surface? So the implicit is like a basic operating system that we're not aware of that's occurring at the precortical level. And so what I think about in terms of attachment, that that's part of our operating system of how we are in relationship to other, right? And there is a neurological platform that supports that. And that's occurring through in our gestures, in the gesture of yield, reach, push, grasp, and then back to yield again. So understanding those implicit processes brings us more into contact with our attachment system and how, how are we navigating our relational needs? How are we navigating our um, ability to know what foods that we want, reach for those foods, effectively take those foods in? And so in a, from a somatic lens, we can work with the actual movement and that will allow us to begin to explore that terrain. This is one of the reasons why eating disorders take so long to recover from. Sometimes we're going back or the client is going back to feelings or messages that they got as toddlers about what happens when I reach out for relationship? What happens when I reach out for food? Am I reprimanded? Are there certain things I can and can't do? As young as that, these patterns, these thoughts are starting to get created. And that's how the psyche is built on each one of those moments. And so one of the, and by the way, we don't have to start back saying, okay, so now we're going to start healing age three and we're going to go chronologically. It's not like that, but it does, you do really have to go back to some basic memories. I know that this is a little bit of a leap from what we're talking about, but I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, if we're looking at healing through the way you're talking, through this unbelievable model that I think is so phenomenal. How would you define, now I'm going to the other end of the spectrum, how do you define recovery, being recovered? Is it the ability to sit and tolerate body sensations? What, what would that look like for you? So I think of recovery as being um, parallel to what does it mean when we're in our optimal window? So when we're in our optimal window, we can regulate our emotions with ease, right? We're not feeling overwhelmed. We're not afraid to be with particular emotions. We can regulate our body temperature. We can regulate our sleep. We know when we're hungry and when we're full. We can reach out to others for support. We can identify what we need in a given moment, right? We're present, alert, but calm, we're regulated. So that is, that's the optimal window. And that for me is what recovery is, right? So when our window is small, which most clients with eating disorders have a small window because 
can be because of the attachment system, but can also be the trauma physiology that I believe can happen for some because of birth trauma or the prenatal environment or things that have just not been on our radar as a field. And when that's running the show, we also have to consider, okay, this client, not only is the window small, but the trauma physiology is pushing them out of the window. And then we're going to see the states of hyper or hypo arousal that are indicative of trauma. So you go all the way back to the actual moment of birth. We go back to the womb environment. And because we know in epigenetics that that environment, that the the chemicals that are circulating in the womb, the stress hormones that the mother might be experiencing are impacting the baby. We're, we're asking questions in our model about what was going on in the family around conception. Was there a death in the family? Did dad lose his job? How was mom's stress level? Is there anxiety? That will start to impact the development of the nervous system from the first trimester. And so that's how far back we're looking. And in somatic experiencing and some of the touch modalities I'm trained in, we're trained to be able to identify and work with the residue of that trauma, which can show up as persistent or pervasive anxiety. An undercurrent of, I think of it as, uh, for many of my clients, you're, you're plugged into an electrical socket and there's a low vibration all the time running in your nervous system. And even though you may recover from your eating disorder symptoms, unless that piece is attended to, you're still going to have an underlying anxiety even when you recover from your symptoms. And so we're, when we think about healing and body recovery, we're thinking very holistically about healing whole system beyond the symptoms. And this is why strictly behavioral work does not do it. This is why I often, when, when I was a clinical director, I used to fight with insurance providers. That's right. Case managers and doctors. I used to have to do these doc to docs that I swear I still have nightmares about. And they would say the client Say a client came in with like bulimia nervosa. The client has been symptom-free for seven days. They're ready to go. And I'm thinking, and I would say to them, they have not even touched the surface of what is underneath. They are symptom-free because they are in a supportive environment and they are not out in the world that feels like it's attacking their nervous system. It is so powerful when we think about it from that perspective, the way our nervous system is being activated or reactivated out in the world. Many of our clients, because of that early predisposition of the un- that underlying anxiety, um, I think of them as being highly sensitive energetically 
right? That they, and so sending them back out into the world when their symptoms are reduced, but they, we haven't done anything to attend to that sensitivity is, is not really fair. We often use the expression in eating disorders, the canary in the coal mine. Canary in the coal mine is saying that canaries have a high level of sensitivity. And so the coal miners used to send canaries into the coal mine to see if there was too much toxicity in the coals for them to be able to go in and survive. If the canary came out, it was not a toxic mine. If the canary did not come out, that meant there was too much toxicity and the canary died. And when we look at it with eating disorders, Clients with eating disorders, whether it is anorexia, bulimia, compulsive overeating, whatever it is, they are the canaries in the coal mine where they have this beautiful sensitivity, but they can't tolerate the toxicity in the world. So they're slowly dying. Their nervous system cannot tolerate it. And I would say that particular sensitivity is a sensory integration piece that's been overlooked, where there's a, um, a um, hypersensitivity to, to picking up information from the outside. And then that gets confused for the client around wh- what is mine and what is not mine. So they're absorbing, really, right? And so part of the somatic work with my clients is helping to build the body boundary So that there's a clear differentiation between my body and the rest of the world. And when they can start to feel that and that starts to organize, then the whole body settles. And when the whole body settles, then they may consider eating. So it's not surprising that if one was vibrating at a high frequency and felt threat, either because some not enough of something was there or too much of something was there that one would then say well i can't eat under these conditions <laughs> so they're very understandable when we think about it that way yeah what was it for you did you feel in your own recovery process were you even aware like i look back on my recovery process and It wasn't until I was quite far along as a recovered person that I realized I was completely disconnected from my body. I was, well, I always knew in my eating disorder that I was afraid of my body. I was afraid to feel things. I just don't think I realized it until I was fully recovered how disconnected I was. How did you start that integration of body, mind, and spirit? Well, I can't remember the exact year. I guess it was 2004. Um, I attended Anita Johnson and Carolyn Costin's training on tending the feminine psych. And in that training, they had a Nia instructor. She led us on an excursion into our bodies. And I had had an awakening. And I, I get this sense of, oh, there's, there's something happening to me right now. I'm coming into a deeper, I was landing in my body for the first time in a very different way. And I realized, oh, this is the missing piece. We need to bring clients into their bodies. And so I was sort of on a parallel path at that point of understanding the, the complexity of eating disorder recovery and my own 
recovery at the same time. And so from that, I began taking movement classes, Gabriel Roth and different types of meditative movement to explore the terrain of embodiment from the inside. And I began to bring that to the treatment center with Anita and try it out with the clients. And fortunately, she gave a lot of free reign for me to see what happens. And um, I found that the clients were shifting by simply having them move. And so I left Hawaii and decided to follow this journey. And, and so as I progressed, I stumbled across um, somatic experiencing. And uh, I had a friend who knew I was interested in embodiment practices. And it was probably my first day in the training that the light bulbs went off. And I realized, oh, I am not embodied. And, you know, I was practicing yoga. I was doing dance. I really did feel like I had a good foundation, right? I had, I'd recovered 20 years without symptoms, right? So looks pretty recovered there, right? Um, But not embodied. And so when I began to study somatic experiencing, which is a very gentle, very delicate approach to coming into contact with the body. So noticing my sensations. Is it warm? Is it cold? Is it tingly? Is it tight? Is it expansive? Is it contracted? Noticing, oh, do my sensations have colors? If they were a shape, what shape would they be? Where are they happening? And I stay with the tightness. What's happening when I stay with the tightness? Oh, it shifts, it moves. Oh, let's see what happens then. So going into that terrain with that guidance and that container that somatic experiencing offers, I was able to bump into some of my early shock trauma that came from my prenatal. I almost died at birth, so I hit up against that, as well as my implicit um, other trauma around, um, you know, you name it, bullying or, you know, things that had happened in my early years that had led to my eating disorder. And uh, within a two-year period of that training, I was a different person. I could make eye contact, I could hold gaze, I could be in a crowded room and not feel social anxiety. So I I was a walking billboard of the effectiveness of that treatment. And so I said, I need to do, I need to share this because this is important and something is happening. And so before the first year had ended, I started to put together and work with another SE therapist to, to train eating disorder providers in this because I knew that this was a missing piece. It wasn't until I met Rachel that I understood the depth of the attachment piece because that's what sensory motor psychotherapy brings. And so after I'm now seven years trained in SE, I'm about a year and a half or two into sensory motor psychotherapy. Now in my recovery, I understand all the attachment strategies that were developed because again, you can be recovered from symptoms, but you still can have attachment strategies. And so then my recovery took another turn where I dove into my attachment strategies. So you know, I'm still in the process of unfolding 
myself, even though I'm 20 years symptom free. And so I can see now how all the pieces fit together for me. And it was the perfect storm of trauma, sensory integration, and attachment. Um, I'll say one more thing. One of the last pieces that I did that sort of blew me away was I did um, the Safe Sound Protocol. Stephen Porges developed an auditory intervention to work with um, shifting states and helping clients come out of states of high arousal or low arousal through, it's a passive intervention that opens up the social engagement system and supports auditory processing. The idea being that um, in states of threat, our ears close, so we only identify either low predator noise or high, and we're not actually listening, able to hear safe sound. So it's a five-day protocol. And when I did that protocol, um, prior to that protocol, I was having trouble driving. I had a lot of sensory integration challenges and driving was stressful. And I did the protocol and walked out and it was the first time in years that I could drive without stress and not feel like I was trying to do 20 things at once. And um, so I'm fascinated now by the options that we have in these three areas, attachment, trauma, and sensory integration, knowing that my story is not everyone's story, but you know, I have a lot of clients that have sensory integration challenges. I have a lot of clients that have misophonia. I have a lot of clients that you know, don't know where their body is in space half the time. And so I think for me, these newer approaches that are evolving have, um, for the first time, have me excited about, you know, the potential for effective change. I would like to ask, I also do not know what misophonia is. So I don't, I'm, I'm imagining some listeners don't know either. So can you? So can you misophonia is a um, diagnosis where it, chewing, when you hear someone else chew, you become very angry and agitated. Can I say something? I have worked with a lot of clients with that. And for some reason, never knew the actual name. Hmm? My, I'm going to two different thoughts. One is, and this may be an incredible leap, but I have also worked with clients. I've seen a lot of clients come through residential programs when I used to work there that are in all different levels of spectrum of autism. And I'm wondering, am I creating a thought that has nothing to do with this or because they, they have trouble with, with sounds, they have trouble with touch, they have trouble with body sensation. Is there anything, does this apply to that population or is this something that I'm just creating on my own? Mm-hmm. Well, I think Stephen Porges can speak and he has started to speak more um, on behalf of, because this is where he studies. This Safe Sound was developed primarily for autism. So, you know, autism might be that population where we have the sensory integration challenge and we have trauma, but we don't have the attachment deficit, right? So, so when I think about those three things, at least one of them is going to be occurring 
with an eating disorder, maybe two, maybe all three, right? And with autism, the sensory integration piece is definitely there, right? So how I think about eating disorders now is that they are, we used to say they were attempts to control. And rather than thinking about it like that, I think, okay, they're attempts to manage Mm -hmm. dysregulation. And whether that dysregulation is happening because of the autism or the sensory integration or because of the trauma or because of the attachment, something is causing dysregulation in that nervous system. And this is my best attempt to try to create some sense of regulation. Absolutely. Very beautifully said. The other thing, I'm imagining clients that are sitting at, you know, on my couch and I want to first preface this statement by saying trauma comes in all forms and trauma is also relative to your own experience. I felt growing up a lot of trauma from just my existence in the world. I, you know, I was teased at times. I didn't feel like I fit in. I, I felt traumatized being Jewish in a, in a, in a town that didn't have a lot of Jewish kids. So, you know, I'm just saying, so trauma is, I, I used to cry if my parents were like five minutes late coming home from dinner, I'd be like, they're in an accident. I was just an anxious, anxious little kid. So trauma comes in many forms. What I'm thinking, though, is clients that I work with, with really severe sexual trauma, how do you help them get back into their body? Because that, their, their, their survival mechanism is to actually detach from the body and usually detaching through eating disorder behaviors. So... Is that a too broad of a question? No, not at all. Um, and it's perfectly appropriate because I see a lot of that as well. So, um, so I've talked about expanding the window through the attachment system and working with the gestures. But then there's the other piece. What happens when there's a trauma physiology? And in those cases, the work for me is about helping them come back into the window by supporting the client in expressing the flight that they didn't get to have in the trauma or the fight that they didn't get to have in the trauma or supporting the client through embodiment practices to come out of the freeze, right? So that they can then access the fight or the flight. And trauma is about choice. And it's about um, when, when we feel helpless and overwhelmed, too much, too big, too fast, and we cannot do anything about it, um, that's primarily what creates trauma, right? So, so something happening to us and then the inability to be able to process what happened to us. So there's the event and then there's the discharge of all that energy around the event. And when we can't, when either one is thwarted, we get the, this compounded survival energy in the body, which is what somatic experiencing studies. Um, so the work when there's trauma is about, well, one is about uncoupling what we call uncoupling the food from the event because they've been Velcroed together and association has been developed. And so we have to take those apart so that 
we can say, okay, I'm feeling reactivity when I see the food. Well, when was the last time, the other time you felt that type of reactivity? Oh, it was when I was assaulted. Okay, so let's move the food over here. Let's talk about when you were assaulted. Now feel that energy. Then working with the client, when you think about that, what does your body want to do? Well, I want to push, I want to scream, I want to yell. So supporting the discharge of that survival energy that's still bound in the body. So that might be one example. Another example, if there's a freeze in the body because fight or flight were not an option at the time of the trauma, then my practices might be supporting clients into um, feeling the body again and coming out of that dissociation. So it may be doing things like squeezing. This is my arm, right? Coming into contact with my arm. I'm going to push my arm on a wall and feel and be, embody my arms again. These are my arms. Oh, what's it like to have arms? So practices that facilitate more embodiment. This work that you are doing is so sacred. I know from other people that I know in the field that do similar work to you, the trainings that you go through to be certified in these theories and models takes years. It is a lot of work and, and it's, it's good work, Paula. It is like, and I don't mean like good Paula, good, I don't know why I said it like that, but, but it is dedication. I feel like every guest I have on the podcast, I feel like, is there anything else that somebody can be dedicated to? Then you come on and you're dedicated to this or, you know, the dedication that it takes. Because again, we are dealing with the most precious thing in the whole wide world, people's bodies, people's psyches, people's soul. And I, I really just wanted to say that, like, wow, thank you. Thank you for the, the time you put in for the training. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I can only speak for myself. Um, many of us, I think that end up dedicated to it are, are on our own personal journeys, right? So that our clients benefit from it, definitely, but when you start to explore your own journey through these lenses, uh, it's mind blowing, right? What we can start to, to understand about ourselves. And um, I think the process of embodiment and becoming more embodied is so exciting. And, and that fuels the excitement and the motivation to continue and belief in the work because we see I saw phenomenal changes to the people that were in my training program. And so watching them change, watching myself change, I think there's inspiration and there's a desire to take that back out into the world. Do you think that's why there is an added benefit to working with a recovered professional? I have always been of the belief that it, is helpful to have someone that understands um, eating disorders, be it for their own journey or maybe a family member to have some you know, perspective around it. Uh, I've had a client even this week, we were talking about 
how much she appreciates just knowing that people get to the other side and having a provider that's gotten to the other side um, for this particular client she shared was part of the reason why she stayed in treatment. So I do believe um, that it's important. And if one did not have that background, they'd have to be really, really tuned in to the dynamics behind it because um, there's this piece about wanting to feel gotten and understood. Um, and and I think you know when you've when you've been through an eating disorder, you you sort of can cut through that piece, and there's a agreement between you, you know that that I get it, and and sometimes there doesn't have to be a lot of words explaining something because there's a knowingness. I agree. And I'm only smiling right now because I'm thinking of a few clients that I have that I literally just have to make a look, a facial look to. And they're like, damn it, you know, I'm lying. You know what I mean? Like there's just this knowing. I, I'm listening to how you talked about your journey, how free from symptoms for 20 years, still working on the emotional part after. What do you think? What, what fact or part of self took the longest for you to understand or accept on this journey? And I guess as I'm asking that, are you still trying to figure that out? Yeah. Um, I think the, the piece that I'm working with now where, um, again, we may call it sensitivity, right? So when we have early birth experience that impact our ability to embody Okay. We end up being highly sensitive and intuitive, right? So there's pros and cons of both. And I think that's the part of my journey that I'm both embracing right now, right? This ability, I do a developmental work using touch now and have moved into work that where I'm using more intuitive means. So embracing that piece, but also, um, I also actively currently work on practices that support embodiment because the, the, that's the starting point of it all. If we, if we are not embodied, if we're not here on this planet, then those other pieces that come from you know, our ability to know what we want, our ability to reach, our ability to express our feelings are not going to happen. We have to be here. And so um, because when there are interruptions that early on, it's not an easy, quick fix and it takes time to heal. And so that's part of my current journey is still, you know, making sure I'm going and I'm getting my sessions, right. Or I'm getting touch work done, or I'm doing qigong, or whatever practices I might be doing to support embodiment, so I can live from a place of recovery. Right? I was talking to a client yesterday about recovery being a choice in some ways, like a, a choice to live from a principle of knowingness that recovery takes showing up and then making a decision from that place, right? What helps me show up? And so I have to choose that every day, right? 
to choose to show up in my relationships, to show up in my relationship to myself, to show up with integrity to my clients, to keep doing my own work. And, and all of that keeps me in recovery. And to choose to go through as opposed around. Exactly. Difficult feelings, situations, whatever it is. That's the choice. Nobody chooses to have an eating disorder. That was a, a number of events that happened that, but you choose whether or not you want to stay in it or you want to do the harder thing. And it's not an easy choice. I say this to them, to clients all the time. I, and, and I say, my heart aches for you because I remember this is not an easy choice, but it is a choice. You either choose to, an exper- to experience an emotion and move through it and cry if tears are necessary or go for a walk if you need, whatever it is, or you choose to pretend it's not happening and go to a behavior. At every moment, you have a choice. Looked like you were going to say something. I was nodding. Yeah. I, I think for me, it's about, um, I often say to clients, um, yes, you, you may have to feel those feelings you didn't want to feel, but in, the, in 2020, you're not alone. So the choice is to use relationship to be with the feelings that they didn't want to be with or can't be with or are trying to tolerate. And a piece, a big piece of the misunderstanding in the field for some of the more cognitive approaches is that we're asking clients to self-regulate with tools before they've learned to co-regulate. Self-regulation comes out of co-regulation. And I find myself teaching every week to a new consultee that same premise that we have to go back and start with the co-regulation and the self-regulation will come from that. It is, it, and this is the bottom up, right? As opposed to top down way of working with people. You, you also said something else that, that, resonated with me that's very important and something that I know you've experienced and I've experienced since we both know Anita and Carolyn and we both did the, you know, the retreat in Hawaii, tending of the feminine psyche. You mentioned reaching out. I know for me, it was finding community. I know for me, it's sitting in circle with others. Having a sacred space that I don't feel judged. I feel I I have given myself permission to be authentically myself. I often think about the circles that I sat in in Hawaii and how I replicated them in my personal life at home. And it doesn't have to literally be a circle, but it's that community. Because by the way, the eating disorder loves isolation. Also in isolation, you can misunderstand somatic feelings because there's too much of a focus on each feeling. And I, I just felt like I wanted to, to just sort of name that because I think that's an important part of recovery. Yeah, we need, we're mammals. 
we need to be in relationship to eat, right? So community and connection is part of recovery, right? Learning how to reach for relationship, learning how to take in, learning how to be in relationship when something is difficult and stay in relationship. Um, so our ability to do that is, is essential and tied neurologically to our ability to eat. So I agree. Um, I also think that, um, again, I'm going to go back to that sensitive disposition, um, helping clients understand that how to feel themselves okay, and stay in relationship with other people. Yes. And differentiate that is critical. It is. Is is there a how do you explain that to clients? Because that's a that's a big one. It's a big one. Um, I do everything through somatic exercises. So I have a um sometimes I'll use a scarf and sometimes I'll use a physio ball and I'll have them hold the physio ball between us or a scarf. And I'll have them find themselves and try to orient and ground and then feel me on the other end and now try to do both at the same time. Well, they can't, right? And that's the whole dilemma. So that's the work. And how do we, how I support that. The way I support that work is through the bottom up, through more exercises, through more opportunities to um, learn how to stay in self physically, very physically and then tune into other. And so that's a gradated, there's a gradation to that, that I teach clients how to do. Yeah. Yeah. There's a dance. There's like a beautiful dance, dance, right? Paula, this has been so interesting. We're we're almost at the end of the podcast. And I just want to ask you before we end, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners before we start fully winding this down? I think one of the things when I was um, considering talking to you, because um, you, you had asked about effective treatments, and I think there was a question around why why do we need to help clients continue to find effective treatments? And my feeling is I, I don't want clients to feel that what we currently have in the field is it. Because for some clients, what's available is not working. For some, it may be fine, but for others, it's not enough. And then clients leave feeling like um, they're not enough or feeling defeated or feeling like treatment failed. Or they failed. Or they failed. Yeah. And really it's that they didn't find the right treatment for what they needed. And there are more treatment options. And I'm trying to um, make sure that that information gets out to clients, what those treatment options are. Yes. And gratefully, there are many options because we are not all the same. And isn't that wonderful? It's wonderful that there are so many options. It can be discouraging though, because sometimes it takes a while to find what works for you. And so the message I'm hearing is 
don't give up. Don't give up until you find the right therapist, until you find the right modality that works for you, something that speaks to you. And so, yeah, thank God there's so many different modalities. I agree. Paula, again, thank you so, so much for being a guest on the podcast. It has been really informative and wonderful, and, and I appreciate it, and, I, and I'm sure the listeners do as well. Thank you for having me. It's been a treat. Appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. All right, everyone. Well, thank you again for listening to another episode of Recovery Bites. And I look forward to talking with all of you again next week. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast signup to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.